Hey, Wes, what a great time of year that January brings to the Carolina outdoors. It's a whole new setting. We had a warm December, but we've got a colder January, and our sports seem to be changing with that. But there's one sport that's still going on, and we're going to find out a little bit about that. We're going to get a hunting report from the town of Waxhaw. I'm I'm sorry, you said a hunting report from the town of Waxhaw. It's January, Bill. (laughs) I know it. A lot of our listeners have put up their deer rifles and that sort of thing, except for many in the town of Waxhaw, Uh including some craftsmen. So we're going to have kind of a a two-way category talk here on the Carolina Outdoors because we're going to find out about the deer walking around in Waxhaw in that community. But then we're going to find out about craftsmanship, Mm. workmanship, especially with sharp things, tomahawks, knives, and the like. But before we do that, let's introduce ourselves. The Carolina Outdoors is in session. You heard his voice. That's Wes Lawson on that side, GM of Jesse Brown's Outdoors. I'm Bill Barty, Carolina Outdoors host for... A couple of decades. Let's just put it like that. It's been a minute or two. (laughs) A minute or two. But with that being said, our goal here is to introduce you to people doing things in our Carolina outdoors and the sports that they are doing. And with that, uh, Wes, we are at Jesse Brown's and we have a lot of people coming in and a lot of them are fly fishing that we talk about. A lot of them are hiking that we talk about. Travel has been Uh a big deal for Jesse Brown's. Believe it or not, even in a two-year-or-plus pandemic that's been going on. But we also have hunters and craftsmen that come in. And with that, we're going to invite one on right now. Dank Seal is going to join us from Waxhaw, North Carolina. Danks, tell us, how is the hunting and why are we hunting in Waxhaw this week? Well, Bill, excuse me. Well, Bill, the hunting has been excellent uh, uh, throughout the season, uh, but when uh, deer season ends in the first of January uh, for guns, um, some cities such as Waxhaw has an urban archery season inside the city limits. So if you have permission from the landowner <coughs> to use a bow and arrow, you're allowed to take um, any open deer tags that are left on your license. And um, so far this year, I've taken... Um, Five on my license, uh, uh, three of them inside the city limits. I have a total limit of two bucks and four does. And so uh, it's been good. And uh, <clears throat> urban archery season opens the middle of January and ends the middle of February. And the uh, cities that designate themselves with an urban archery season is to help get the deer populations off the streets where you have too many inside the city limits and it. They get in front of cars and cause problems. Well, and I guess just to clarify for some of our listeners, Waxhaw is not a huge city. Waxhaw is uh, probably twelve to thirteen hundred people per square mile. So uh, there's plenty of still open land, but it's fastly uh, uh, disappearing to uh, developments. How long has this urban season been going on? How many years have we been been practicing this now in Waxhaw? I think Waxhaw started. Uh, if I, if I can remember correctly, about uh, maybe three or four years ago, I think it is. And um, so they're still pursuing it. And other cities in North Carolina have it, too, but I'm not familiar with who, who they are. When it's, it's interesting because, you know, not that many decades ago, the white-tailed deer population throughout the United States was drastically diminished. 
And in the last certainly 15 to 20 years, that population has rebounded, uh, I would say, almost more than steadily throughout many of our neighboring counties and states the point where, you know, routinely we hear people talking about, hunters talking about, we need to open up the season, make it longer, have more uh, doe days in some <clears throat> cases, or have more of these, these urban archery seasons. Uh, what's your take on, on that deer population? Well, the, the population here has uh, been unusually uh, dense inside the city limits because, like I said, a lot of land is being cleared in the city and in the county near Waxhaw, the loss of habitat forces them to find shelter. And this year alone, uh, in the last three months, I've counted six road kills, uh, four in the city limits and two on the outskirts uh, by automobiles. So uh, if they lose their habitat, they have to find new habitat. And wherever it exists, that's where they go. So it's increasing uh, the number of deer in this area. And I think the deer in North Carolina as a whole are increasing. It would certainly seem that way. We, we have seen a, a big increase in the, the harvest numbers year over year, uh, as well as uh, license sales for almost every category of NC Wildlife Commission licenses, whether that's hunting or fishing, and for almost every species. And that's not just a pandemic story, although that has certainly helped. Now, Dinks, the other thing we wanted to talk about, Bill is holding in his hand one of your uh, handmade knives and sheaths. You are something of a renaissance man, if nothing else. Talk to <laughs> us about your your knives and tomahawks, how you got into this, because this is not what you began your life doing, but you've been making knives now for how long? Well, uh, officially I started in 1998. Um, I started even earlier than that. I started in when I was growing up in Vero Beach, Florida, a friend of mine had a dad had a farm and an anvil and a forge, and he and I both—I think we were about ten or twelve years old—saw the movie um, *The Iron Mistress*, which was the story of uh, Jim Bowie and how his Bowie knife came about. So we tried to do that, and my mother wouldn't let me do it after she heard that I was on a forge and anvil because I might lose an eye to a spark. So that into that, and all my life I've wanted to do that. So when I retired. Uh, in 2002, I backed up and started in 1998, four years before that, accumulating what I would need, a forge, an anvil, uh, belt grinders, etc., to uh, pursue what I had in the back of my mind, which I always wanted to do, and that was to make knives and tomahawks of that period. And so <clears throat> in 1998, I took a three-day class under Bill Moran, uh, He's the uh, grandfather of Damascus steel and of Damascus knives in America. He's passed on now and also present with George Heron. And those two gentlemen uh, showed me uh, how to achieve a, a satisfactory knife. And then I went ahead and experimented with that. And then I experimented with making tomahawks. And uh, so it's been a journey <clears throat> since 1998 before I retired, and then after I retired, I got into it uh, somewhat full-time, but deer season always conflicts with that, so I have to turn the forge off and start deer hunting for a while. When your your knives and tomahawks are um, made one at a time, and it's it's a combination of your vision, a maybe a client's wants and wishes, and kind of how the steel and the wood and the other materials sort of 
avail themselves to you because you work with some pretty unique materials, not just high carbon steel blades, but um, you're using some antique woods and some bone, correct? Correct. Yes, I use uh, 5160 steel, which is high carbon, and I've used stainless steel before for people living on the East Coast. <clears throat> and I have a forge and an anvil. And uh, if I'm making something to sell on consignment at Bill's, I uh, normally uh, look through historical pictures and pick out something that existed back uh, 200 years ago and try to replicate that. Uh, some of them I do from um, uh, imagination that I pursue that uh, I wish to create that I haven't had time before. And um, it all comes together, and I use antlers for uh, handles. I use different hardwoods for, for handles. I also use some African beast buck horns from Africa for certain hunters. Um, so there's a lot of varieties of handle material that I use. And uh, the blades are shaped uh, based on my design or what some customer wishes the blade to look like. If a customer comes to me and wants a knife custom-made, I uh, sit down with him and draw it out um, on a piece of paper how it will look uh, based on his recommendations and desires. And then if uh, he's good with that, <clears throat> then I pursue it. Recently, I finished a, a Bowie knife for a guy that I drew a picture of, and he wanted it for killing hogs, feral hogs in South Carolina. And uh, interesting enough, I drew him a life-size picture of the knife, 8-inch blade, etc., with a European stag handle. And out of curiosity, when I finished it, before I, he picked it up, I laid it down on the paper, and it fit perfectly. And I took a picture of that. That's I was just astounded. I couldn't believe it. And um, he took the knife home, and um, that was on a Saturday. And then Sunday morning, I'm in church, and I get a phone call on my phone. I don't answer it. And then afterwards, I open it up, and there's a photograph of a 500-pound pig he killed with it with his knife. He uses hogs, uses dogs to uh, track down the feral hogs that are doing damage to crops. And then he wades in and grabs it by the ear and sticks it in the heart. Not my cup of tea, but he's a big guy, and he can handle that. But, um, <laughs> well, and for our listeners out there, they should know, Danks, uh, our, our initial conversation with you is as a one-of-a-kind uh, craftsman right. making these tomahawks and these uh, sharp-edged knives. We use the Waxall Urban uh, Archery Season as a lead-in because you do use a lot of uh, all of a deer when one is harvested, including yes. uh, going into some of your art. With that being said, uh, sourcing, sharing ideas, equipment that's involved in being a custom knife maker, that's a pretty small community. Um, do you all get together and share ideas, share uh, sourcing, or is this a, a solitaire pursuit uh, that you're doing? Uh, I had a knife maker friend that uh, attended the class with Bill Moran with me, uh, and he's retired now. Um, I think the pandemic has probably, in most cases, um, um, terminated um, productivity and knife making with a lot of guys that depends on it for an income because each year they have a knife show in Atlanta where makers go and exhibit what they've created and hopefully pick up additional orders and sell what they've created. But I think the pandemic has set back a lot of individual makers and, of course, 
in North Carolina, we have a knife makers guild, which I'm no longer a member of because I just don't have time to go there. I'm so busy with other projects. But uh, yeah, knife, <clears throat> knife makers share their thoughts together. There's uh, knife magazines on the on the market. Uh, Knives Illustrated is one, and um, it seems to me from looking at the magazines, a lot of knife makers are going to tactical knives. Why well, I don't know, but the market shifted from custom hunting knives towards tactical knives, and also tactical tomahawks for the uh, armed forces. Well, how long that? How long that'll continue, I don't know. Let me ask you something else, because since 1998 and uh, your education in custom knife making and the success that you've had as an individual, as a a maker, something else has gone on. And I want to ask your opinion on that, because a lot of us, a lot of listeners to the Carolina Outdoors with Wes Lawson and Bill Barty, they have watched the rise of cable television and the entertainment factor that goes into knife making. Do you watch those cable shows where they'll have a challenge or a contest uh, of uh, who's made making the finest blade, the finest knife, the, the finest tomahawk? Do you watch those shows, and, um, and have you learned anything if you do watch them from, from those programs? Yes, I, uh, I normally watch, if, I, if I'm not involved in a good book, I'll watch Forged in Fire, uh, to see how these um, knife makers perform against each other, creating uh, a knife uh, unique to uh, what they're not accustomed to in some cases. So that's an interesting show. I've learned a few things from watching that. I'm a self-taught knife maker. I bought a lot of books and uh, that I've read over the years and studied. And then I experiment with what I've read and uh, go beyond uh, uh the limit, you might say, or curved in experimentation to achieve a better knife. But you know, if you stay within the parameters of what you see in, in books, uh, you come out with a good knife. When you come out with a good knife, thanks, because the, the pieces that we have from you in our display case right now, and one that we uh, somewhat quietly snuck into the studio today, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's unique, but it's, as much as it is artwork, it is still a tool, and it's a tool that was crafted by you locally uh, for a specific purpose. And I think that, you know, while the tactical and tactical things have mm-hmm. certainly come onto the scene, uh, the pieces that we have from you can be used in totality in the outdoors, and they are unique they are terrifically sharp, and each one has a, its own unique story. So for those folks who appreciate good good artwork and good craftsmanship and a tool that's not going to fail, you're on to something here, man. Well, thank you. And um, I think a lot of my inspiration for making uh, unique knives <clears throat> from that period when America was born and the West was one, so to speak, <clears throat> I read a lot of historical books and look at pictures of the past, and I have a unique uh, one-of-a-kind book on tomahawks. It uh, is a collection and photographs of tomahawks that were ever captured on film in America. And I go to that, and I refer to that to get ideas for my own designs. And um, that period in our history has always fascinated me since I was early on in my life, and I grew up in the outdoors and spend a lot of time still in the outdoors. And uh, when a customer places an order for a custom knife and he says, you create whatever you think looks good and I'll be happy with it. 
I said, well, I need some time. And so I'll spend time in the woods hunting or fishing, and then I'll think back on what I'm trying to create. And I don't move forward until I have a vision. And sometimes um, I won't finish it until I'm satisfied with what I'm pursuing. And uh, one customer that uh, was at Bill's one day uh, uh, ordered some knives, and um, the famous knife maker George Heron gave me some wise advice when I first started. I said, George, do you have any advice for me? And he said, yes, I do. I said, what is that? He said, never take a deposit, Danks. I said, why? He said, if you fall behind, they're going to hound you for that deposit. And you don't want to be pressured to make a knife when you're not in the mood or when you're not creating that knife. So that was good advice. So this customer wanted a couple of knives, and I started to work on them. And in the meantime, I got another order that interested me more than what I was doing on his knives. One thing led to another, and he called me six months later and said, had you finished my knives? I said, no, they're not done yet. I'm still working on them. And then he called me a year later. He said, have you finished my knives? I said, no, um, they're aging beautifully, and the patina's looking great, but I haven't decided what I want to do on the sheets yet, and the scabbards. And he said, okay. So three years later, I called him. I said, I've got your knives done. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no. He said, same price? I said, yeah. I said, the good news is the scabbards are sheaths are three times better than they would have been three years ago. He said, why is that? I said, because in the meantime, I've learned some things that I didn't know before from George Heron's wife on how to make a better sheath, and you're going to love them, and he did. Well, patience is a virtue, as they say. Some things that we do have over at Jesse Brown's are made. The Mon- Montana Tracker, the Bird and Trout Knife, it is hand-forged by the Waxall North Carolina's own Knife maker Dank Seal, our guest on the Carolina Outdoors. It's an 1800s era knife. You can come to the knife counter at Jesse Brown's and see it. Danks, I did all this backwards because I need to ask you a personal question as we're ending our interview here on the Carolina Outdoors. There are a lot of listeners out there who are hearing me say your name, Danks Seal. And we have all kinds of guests with all kinds of names. Yours is just like your knives and your tomahawks. It's a one-of-a-kind name. Is Danks a family name, a nickname? Yeah. or yeah, D-A-N-K-S. It's a family name. My great-grandparents were from Germany, immigrants, as I understand it. And uh, it originated from that side. And S-E-E-L, which it was part of their name, too, last name. It was spelled S-C-H-I-E-L, I think. I'm not sure. They changed it to S-E-E-L long ago. But, uh, yes, it is. That's my middle name, Danks Seal, S-E-E-L. And uh, I'll be bringing you some more knives and a tomahawk soon build that's very unique and I'm making that's functional. Will you come on by, and we invite our listeners to come by and see these pieces of art. And, Danks, as a follow-up to uh, learning about your name, if I were to name a knife maker— Dank Seal would be at one of the tops of my list because that is about perfect as far as a knife maker's name goes. Thank you for being on with Wes Lawson, Bill Barty. We're the Outdoor Guys from Jesse Brown's.